long time ago, in a place far away, I was preaching a mission on the Eucharist. And it was going very well, and it was, it was very well attended, a lot of uh, people from this diocese. And afterwards, I um, was talking, between things, I was talking to some of the people that were there. And this one man uh, was very eager to tell me his story. And he had converted to Catholicism and, and uh, was you know, talking about what he identified with from what I talked about in my talk. And we just had this um, very quick connection. And uh, I felt a love for him. He was very grateful for me being there. I was very grateful for him being there, um, that we had this common faith in Jesus and our experience of God. Like I felt bonded to him, like a, a moment sometimes you feel as the church, part of the body of Christ, part of something bigger and this communion, this connection come up. Then later in the day, I saw him again, and I was kind of like, oh, hey, and we were about to have another cool interaction, and I was feeling good. And he said, he started off the conversation, oh, I wanted to ask you, Father, do you, do you think it's always a mortal sin for someone to vote for a pro-choice candidate? And I was like, hmm, that's a tough question. Um, and immediately I started to kind of like, split hairs or try to distinguish because, I mean, it's a complicated, mortal sin is a complicated theological thing. It has to be grave matter. You have to know that it's grave matter. You have to do it in total freedom. Um, we're talking about theoretical pro-choice candidates and theoretical voters. Do they know? Are there alternatives? You know, like, I'm trying to judge people's souls without anybody in front of me, and I just didn't feel good about any answer. Um, but I also didn't want to come off as like, oh, no, uh, I don't care about human life and it's fine, whatever you want to do with your vote, it doesn't really matter. You know, there, it was a no-win situation. I could see him looking at me and uh, I you know, didn't give a great answer. I didn't commit either way and kind of walked away from the conversation feeling ashamed, a little embarrassed for me and for him and like that connection was lost, you know, and I felt like, not good enough for him. Like, he was testing me to see, like, are you a hardcore priest or are you not, you know? Are you namby-pamby on abortion, you know? And I was just like, ugh, I didn't feel good about it at all. Like, I'd failed a test, but I didn't even want to be tested in the first place and just felt unfair. Um, and this is not an accusation of him, and he may have even intended to do it, and we fall into this all the time, particularly with politics. It can become kind of proxy battles for, for other things, other, other questions that we might have, or feeling like, who are the good ones, who are the bad ones? I want to be a good one. Um, and the way that we can phrase questions, or the way that we come to conversations, you may have felt some conversations where you're actually connecting, you're actually receiving information from another person and sharing information with them that they don't know, and you're growing together, and you're seeking the truth in an open way. And then there's other conversations where it's manipulative, it's control, it's domination, it's trying to win, trying to get you on my side um, or prove you wrong and embarrass you. Um, this is what the Pharisees have come to do to Jesus. They've come to entrap him, not to come to him as disciples, open and wanting to receive wisdom and formation. But it says the Pharisees sent the Herodians and their disciples specifically to entrap Jesus so they could get some cause to kill him, to crucify him. Um, so they're coming with a bad attitude, not an openness, 
not a humility, but this kind of um, sick need to control. Um, And of course, Jesus evades this trap easily. He sees it right away. He's not like me, where I'm like, oh man, what do I say? He's just like, you guys are hypocrites, okay? (laughs) Give me the coin. Whose, Whose face is this? Give it back to Caesar then. But to God, what belongs to God? And what belongs to God? Everything. You, your soul, your money. The whole cosmos belongs to God. Okay? So this question of the census tax or this particular politician or, or whatever, okay, that might be an important, God might have something to say about that, but I'm not going to use God or Jesus to try to entrap him with my political arguments in order to control him, that, that, that somehow that's primary to this reality, which is actually the ultimate. But what about us? Okay, it's easy to, con- to condemn the Pharisees. They're the bad guys. But what about us? Do we come to Jesus ever with an agenda, a hidden motive? Are we ever not totally sincere and open? Like, Lord, I have a question for you. And I actually want to know the answer. I haven't come like knowing the answer and testing to see if you know it or testing to see if you're, you're, you agree with me. But like, I, I need you to tell me. I need you to guide me. Um, particular questions like a vocation. We can come to Jesus and be like, Lord, tell me what you want me to do with my life, but I hope it's this, you know. Um, tell me what to do with my life, but not that, as long as it's not that, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's the most understandable thing in the world. We need control. We, it's hard to give up control because what if trusting costs us? What if I'm hurt? What if I don't get what I'm looking for? Even in non-big questions, even just coming to pray, do you ever have that experience with God? You're like, okay, God, where are you? I want something. You, you have this desire in your heart, and you feel like God's not letting himself be wrangled, like he's not acting the way that you hope he would. You're looking for a feeling of peace, of, of contentment, of certainty, and you still end up with this kind of unstable, confusing, not sure. Um, it's like Jesus is evading our trap. Like he's not going to let us control him. Why? Because um, it kind of like mutes and chokes off all the life he actually wants to give us. Remember when I was uh, a kid, I used to, you know, tell Santa what I wanted for Christmas. And I would make a list and stuff. And um, I was often very sure this is exactly what I want. But then there would always be like at the bottom be like, also, just surprise me. (laughs) You know, like I. But do, like, I'm sure that there's a gift I, I want even more than all this stuff, but I don't even know what it is. But you're Santa, you, you probably know. So give me something good that I, I don't even know that I want. Don't we all have that somewhere in our hearts, like this sense that there's some other good for me that I don't even know what it is? And my little imagination, my little attempts at control can't ever open me up enough to what God actually wants to give me. The ultimate is the resurrection. Who on Good Friday or Holy Saturday would have thought, this is actually good that he died, that Pontius Pilate washed his hands of him, that the Pharisees were so petty, that the Roman soldiers were so cruel, that all of his disciples abandoned him. But that's actually going to end up good. Who in, in those situations would have been like, God, come on. Do something. Thought that if they just controlled the outcome more, 
that could have made it better instead of surrendering to what God actually had for us in the resurrection. I saw this thing on the internet. Usually I don't like these things because they feel cliche to me, but it actually spoke to me this time. It said, God can do more with my, with my surrender than I can do with my control. God can do more with my surrender than I can do with my control. Our reflex often when we see problems is to try to control, try to figure out a, a solution, try to depend on ourselves and on our resources and on our cleverness. But some problems are just so big we have to surrender. Um, there's another phrase I read recently. He said, uh, if I choose a course of action with a specific result in mind, I know I'm doing my will, not God's will. That blew my mind, too. Like, you're just going to go through life with no result in mind? It doesn't mean don't make any plans. Like, don't, uh, you know, like, plan out what you're going to do later today or what you're going to eat for dinner tonight. It just means that if your whole life is just trying to get somewhere, trying to achieve a goal and not somehow receiving a gift, um, then we're just doing our will, not God's will. The resurrection, again, it's, it's like, who could have guessed that, that that was God's will, but it was in our total surrender to it that we, that we receive it. Um, and so this attitude of receptivity, this attitude of humility that we come to God with is, is power. Um, Jesus often says to people in the Gospels, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Meaning, your trust in me, your ability to give yourself to me and to what I want to give you um, has unlocked power in your life that you didn't know was possible. But the paradox with that, too, is that faith is a gift. What if I come to God and I can't even surrender? I can't get myself to believe. I can't get myself to trust. I even need help with that. I even need to surrender to my inability to surrender. And when we get to those places of real humility, real weakness, real fragility, then all of a sudden, that's often when he shows up. That's when he, he stoops down and, says, and lifts us up and carries us. Um, we believe that faith, like hope and charity, is a theological virtue. It's a gift from heaven. The Holy Spirit has to give you faith. You cannot get it yourself. But it can be practiced. It's a virtue that can be learned and lived. Um, but it has to be received. And so we ask for that gift today from God to trust him, to to let our hidden agenda, let our hidden motives out and just show them to Jesus and say, Lord, take them. But give me now what you actually want to give me. Give me the gift that will surprise me that I don't even know that I want.